Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, and I'm Sam. Sam, how are you today? I'm all right, Don. How are you? I'm just sitting here recovering as hard as I possibly can. You are? Dude, I thought that bead of sweat might be from work, but I'm thinking it might just be that you're just so chill that it's condensation. Whoa! Are you excited the owl there? (laughs) The Boiled Owl here at the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. We have a guest. We do have a guest. Introduce our guest. Hey, I'm Nathan. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking that um, I was describing our podcast um, to someone and they were going, what's Boiled Owl? Why do you call it the Boiled Owl? Well, aside from a great soup base, (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Don? Well, I'm a big book thumper, I guess. Or maybe people don't notice all the little odd things in the big book like I do. But I've always, the first time I heard it, I just love this from page 158. We turn in our text, A Vision for You. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop. But by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. <laughs> One of these days, I'm gonna get that owl down. Was that an owl? <laughs> that was a dying. That was a boiling owl. <laughs> <That was> a <laughs> boiling owl. <laughs> so it's like a boiled owl. So I, the way I figured is, once you've been boiled like an owl, you can never go back to being an unboiled owl. That's what. Just go. like being an alcoholic. Once you once you're a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber. You can be a very sour cucumber. Once you've been boiled like an owl, you're, you can't. You can't put your feathers back on. Well, you know, there's glue. (laughs) I can fake anything, Doc. That's the thing. I'm a really good alcoholic, and I can fake anything for about 10 to 15 minutes. That's what we're good at. You know, recently it was Halloween, which is the best of all holidays because that's when we get to dress up like somebody else and pretend like we're someone else and drink as much as you possibly can. This is my favorite holiday. Yeah, it was indeed. It was that, uh, you know, it's it's that time when I get to uh, just kind of hide behind a mask, more so than usual when I was a I'm drunk, um, and, uh, and totally just let it go. Well, Nathan. Yeah. I'm glad you joined us here today. I'm glad you invited me. What? Um, tell us about what it was like for you. What when you first came to AA? What was it about your drinking that made you come to AA? And what what was that whole experience? Like? Sure. So, <clears throat> I uh, I just celebrated an anniversary, so I had a chance to think through this. So that's right. How many talking, years? Uh, so it was ten years last Thursday. So awesome. Yeah. So a little bit of time. Uh, and one of the things I did, I was talking with my sponsor, and uh, he was asking me about my early recovery. And, and he had shared with me that it always gets him to think about when he got sober and sort of his last drink. And I, I sort of shared with him jokingly, I said, if I had known that was, if I had known the end of my drinking was going to be the end of my drinking, I would have made it a lot cooler or a lot better. <laughs> um, I did not know I had quit drinking when I quit drinking, um, partly because I had tried so many times to quit that. I didn't know that was actually going to take the last time I did it. Um, so I, I fi- it finally took in October, but I had started trying in July, the summer before. Mm-hmm. So I was living and working a long, long way away. Um, I was in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was working as a I was working in a hospital. And by then, I had started day drinking, and people were smelling it on me. And after a while. My supervisor decided to talk to me about it, and I denied it. And um, I think my excuse was that I, I drank hard, but it was at night, and they were just smelling sort of the effects the next day. Um, so I, I wasn't denying drinking, but I was pretending that it was it was from the night before, not that I was actually, you know, literally had 
hidden bottles around the hospital, which is totally true. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is totally true. <laughs> so um, the first time it worked, the first time, or, or at least there were no consequences. I don't know if it worked, but it, it felt like it worked. It got him off my back, and about two weeks later, um, he called me to his office again. And it was the same thing. You know, one of your coworkers said that she smelled alcohol on you. And I tried the same excuse. He said, well, just to be sure, why don't we go to, I don't remember where it was in the hospital, but basically I had to take a breathalyzer. And I blew like a .24 or something at about 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, so It was mouthwash, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the craziest part is that I remember feeling not drunk. I mean, I remember, you know, I remember feeling like I was, I was in operating mode, you know, that I, that not literally, I was, I'm not a physician, um, but that I was operating just fine. Right? <laughs> yes, I was an operating on Functional. Yes. You yes, weren't at the operating table. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so that happened. So I very confidently blew into the breathalyzer and blew like a 0.24. <laughs> I, I think I thought my confidence was somehow going to transfer. Uh, yeah, it was, it was somehow going to fold the machine uh, that you know was designed to measure my blood alcohol level. And after that happened, I was basically um, given a choice that I could kind of quit the program I was in, or I could sort of continue the program if I attended a um, residential rehabilitation program that they had at the hospital. What's the program you were so in? It, so it, I don't. It was an IOP. I mean, so it was a it was a twelve step step based rehab. Oh, so uh, you mean. What program was I doing when all this that happened? You had to quit. So well, so I was that um, they that they threatened you quit the program. Yeah. So I was working as a hospital chaplain. Uh huh. Yeah. So I was interning. So it's called clinical pastoral education. So CPE is the uh, the initials. It's, it's what it's called. But um, it was part of. So I'm an ordained priest. So it was part of the. Um, it's a Episcopalian, isn't it? Uh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The joke is always if you can find four Episcopalians, they'll always find a fifth. Um, so yeah so i so i was doing my my clinical pastoral um education internship Mm -hmm. so i was working as a hospital chaplain and you're about to lose that yeah oh yeah i mean in my mind i i I, I had lost it you know um and so they basically blackmailed me i mean i didn't have a choice you know Mm -hmm. um you know they sort of had the gun to my head and said Listen, if you want to finish this program, you have to do you have to do part of this treatment um, program. So consequences. I know, I know, which I did not enjoy. Um, but I, at this point, I knew I had a problem. I mean, at this point, I knew I did not drink normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking in terms of whether I wanted to quit or whether I thought I could quit or whether. I mean, at that point, I still, I think I still thought that once I finished school, I would somehow settle down, right? So my, so my drinking started in high Finishing school. school would enable you to drink normally, whatever that is. Well, so I think the story, so the story I, I, I had told myself for about 10 years um, was that the next phase in life would be the phase where I sort of slowed down and settled down and got serious. Mm-hmm. So I started drinking as a young teenager. Um, and then when, when that started really picking up, the narrative I told myself was that, well, I'm just a teenager. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. And then I went to college and my drinking sort of picked up. And the narrative I told myself is that I'm in college. This is what you do. And um, sort of through all of those things in my mind, it was that next step was going to be the thing that sort of settled me down. Right. right? When I was in high school, mm-hmm. when I got to college, I was really getting serious about academics. Um, mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, you know, party as That would do it. Right. And then when I was in college, I mean, part of the problem was that I was high functioning. So, I, you know, you joked a minute ago about consequences um, when, when things came to a head years later. The reality was I just didn't have consequences. You know, I, I at least thought of myself as a smart kid and was able to sort of bullshit teachers and parents and adults. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I remember I, I had skipped so much high school one year that I had to petition the Board of Education to allow me to graduate. Um, and I did. Wow. Um, but my grades were fine. You know? I mean, I, I'm one of those people that everybody hated because you always blew up the curve on a test, but I took tests really well. Um, I once made a deal with an algebra teacher that if I got in the 90th or higher percentile on the end of your test, she would pass me. 
because I had like a 45 average in the class because I never went, um, and that worked. So, so you know, throughout throughout my story, I I vividly remember these moments where I was rationalizing my behavior with the assumption that that as I got as I quote unquote grew up, I would settle down. Sure. Um, and that my drinking would not continue at the pace it did. The reality was that my my drinking sort of increased exponentially. That you know there was never a year where my drinking was any better than the year before, except for one year in college when I actually quit drinking for a year, um, just to show that I could do it. Um, Whoa. It was an absolute test of willpower, and I did not drink a drop of alcohol that entire year. Um, and on the one year anniversary of not drinking, I got drunk. Um, I'd be able to to drink on that for an additional twenty years. Right. Well, I you know right. I proved I'm not an alcoholic. Right. It was a whole year absolutely. I didn't drink. And that's exactly what it was. You know, it was it was abs- it was a an absolute exercise of of self will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it bitterly, and I did not. I was not at all sober. Um, I just wasn't drinking. Oh, um, I see. You know, and and I did when I say I wasn't sober, I mean I wasn't healthy. I don't. Were you smoking think, pot and using other drugs? I think I may have drugs? once or twice that year, but I mean, it was not. No, you weren't even using drugs, really. No, no. Um, you know, and and I remember at that point, the narrative that I told myself. So as I think about my story, I can think about the narrative I had in my head sort of during different phases. So the narrative going on that year was healthy. So I was being healthy. Mm-hmm. So I, I started eating a vegetarian diet. I quit drinking and I started running. Um, and... Alcoholics are enthusiasts. So when I started yeah. running, I started running until I peed blood once. Um, I mean, I that's how I do things. I do them to the extreme. You know? It's extreme. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. And, and so and so that year was, in my mind, proof that I was in control. Um, and which which was really hard because later on, in order to comp- in order to continue that narrative, the story I had to tell myself that I was just choosing to drink the way. Which so, is really hard. So, how many years did you drink after that experiment of one year of not drinking? Um, four. Mm-hmm. Four more years. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I did a full year of not drinking. I drank intentionally on the year to celebrate it with a friend of mine. All right. Um, that was right before I turned twenty-one. So about three and a half years. So I got sober when I was twenty-three. Wow. You know, there's a couple things that you've said already that, that just kind of stand out to me. First of all, the, the business of not drinking, that we are enthusiasts and, and becoming a runner and, and, and going all out on oh, yeah. that. I just heard on, on NPR that a uh, story is coming up uh, sometime this week about a uh, uh, an addict who um, quit drugs and became a runner and ran across the Sahara Desert. That's us. Sounds reasonable. Totally reasonable. And the thing that comes to mind is that sounds hot. But otherwise, yeah. Yeah. it makes you run faster because you don't want to touch the ground. <laughs> right. Um, but then the other thing was, uh, I love how none of us are unique. We come in here thinking that we're unique. Right. And Absolutely. I just heard something that I've heard no one else share in the rooms. And it's my story. <laughs> and it was that I missed too many days my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And they would not let me graduate. Yeah. And I had the grades. And I wound up, they were going to make me do summer school. And I said, forget it. And yeah. I went and got a GED. Huh. Um, I didn't know that, and it may not have been an option to petition, but you know, it was one of those things that, you know, if you don't show up, they right. don't want you to graduate. Right. Well, in public school, there, there, there's a mandatory minimum of mm-hmm. days. Now, part part of my story, just to add some context to that, was when I was a freshman in high school, my mom died, and I milked that for all it was worth. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I so that you know, I definitely definitely learned how to play the victim card and sort of get sympathy and the woe is me, poor kid, he's overcome so much. I mean, I, you know. And it's justifiable. I mean, you could you could take something like that and and really justify oh, the absolutely. victim. Absolutely. Um, it's true. It's ho- That's horrible. Right. I mean, it, it was. At the same time, I knew what I was doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, which I think is evidence to me that I, I wasn't quite as much of a a victim as I thought I was, or at least as I pretended to be, or perhaps maybe I was as much a victim as I thought I did, but I just wielded it as a weapon, or perhaps or just a, a little shield. sociopathic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not above that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So you uh, you got to the so you got to the treatment center. So yeah. Then? So what happened was so fast forward to I, I made it through high school barely. Um, got into a good college. Made it. 
had a great, you know, graduated with distinction, high GPA, got into an Ivy League graduate school. I was in the summer between my first and second year um, in graduate school when I was in Alaska. And I was faced with the decision to either drop out of the program or continue the program sort of under a probationary status um, with the caveat to my completion being that I participated in this outpatient program. So, I mean, as I look back, it was a ridiculously generous offer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that they really had no business offering me. I mean, it was, they did not owe that to me at all. Um, but, because it basically cut my sort of clinical time down in half. Because every day I would spend the first half of the day at the application um, program. Oh. Sort of in meetings and sessions and counseling and stuff like that. And then I would do my clinical rounds later on um, in the day because I could work the night shift. So I was essentially working two jobs. I was, you know, I was doing pastoral care in the evenings, and I was doing, um, you know, a full IOP um, during uh -huh. the day. Did you embrace the uh, the uh, twelve step program at that time, or were you um, just doing it? I was just doing it. I mean, <clears throat> I, at that that was the first time that I sort of embraced the identity of an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I mean that that was the first time I used that language to describe myself. Um, sort of in a public setting at least. And I I certainly was not there thinking I don't belong. And I certainly was not there thinking, oh, this is a bunch of crap. Um, you know, I, I think I thought I was going to do it. Um, and I made it 26 days out of a 28-day program. I drank. Um, and they kicked me out. Huh. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, they didn't physically kick me out, but they did not credential me. So, um, so I, um, yeah, so that was right at the, the end of my stay up there in the summer. Uh, and I came back sort of. So, so when did it, when did AA take? Well, so that was the, uh, that was August. I came back to this, uh, to the continental U S from Alaska and I started the fall semester and um, I remember seeing we had a weekly newsletter for my um, graduate school, and one of the things that was on the calendar that had been on there for years I never paid attention to was an on-campus meeting, an AA meeting um, that was on campus. And about two months after I got back, when my drinking had sort of gotten even worse than it had, um, you know, I had showed up to class drunk once and fell out of my chair. And my professor called me out. He asked me to stay after. And, you know, I, in my head, I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. And as I look back in reality, they were just scared um, for me. I mean, they were worried about me. You know, I was self-destructing. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. they weren't mad at me. They, they just didn't know what to do. I mean, I was just drunk all the time. But we're in, when we're in that place, anyone who's showing attention or, or concern it's like fear. that, yeah. it's... Yeah. It, they're coming after me. They're they're oh absolutely. They're going to ruin what I'm doing. They're going to take away what works. It. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so you know, in my mind, um, you know, because I was in this process, which you know, I was in this process whose culmination was eventually, you know, working as a as a priest in, in a church. That was the finish line, and I knew that kind of if anything that got in the way could stop me from crossing that. So the teacher called me out. Um, not public. The teacher sort of called me aside afterwards, and you know, I told the teacher, I said, "Listen, I'm, you know, I've got a drinking problem, and I, I've been trying to quit, and I just haven't been able to do it." Um, which was sort of true. I mean, I I did have a drinking problem, and and I kind of tried to quit, but I was not actively trying. I was just trying to, basically, I was trying to quit and drink at the same time, which is not sustainable. You know, all I wanted to do was quit drinking. To keep you drinking. felt like you needed to quit, right? Right, but I was not I was not taking any action mm -hmm. that would result in me not drinking. <laughs> you know, I wasn't even trying. You mm -hmm. know, I wanted to not be drinking, but I wasn't doing anything mm -hmm. to to prevent me from from feeling like drinking or acting on it. And then, out of literally out of desperation, I thought, well, I'm gonna try this meeting. It's on campus. Um, you know, and it was really a thing of convenience. I think if it was more than walking distance, I probably wouldn't have gone. Mm -hmm. And I went over there, and I remember it was in a classroom, and I remember walking down the hallway and uh, seeing the door, and the door was shut. I thought, oh my God, what's on the other side of this door? So <laughs> I opened the door, and there was a woman there who was probably 50. 
she was reading a book and it was just her and I thought, oh, thank God, it's not the meeting. <laughs> and I opened the door and she goes, you looking for a meeting? And I said, yeah. And she goes, hold on. She pulled out her cell phone and she calls somebody and within a second, she just yells, we got one. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's um, fantastic. And apparently she and another alcoholic had been taking turns sitting in that room once a night or once a week for an hour for two years in case an alcoholic came. Wow. It was just a tool. No. Wow. That is some service work. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about being available. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, later on, the the guy she ended up calling, um, Joey, uh, became my first sponsor. And at the time, he was a little older than me. He was 26 or 27. And he's a a brilliant guy, Princeton undergrad. Um, You know, and the first time I heard him tell his story, it included him not remembering, but being told about being pulled out of a fiery car wreck he caused. Wow. Um, and so I, I had a, uh, I had somebody I could relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I think is, is honestly what saved my life was that I heard somebody who I, who looked like me and who had similar experiences to me and somebody that I, you know, at least on the surface felt like I could be like, or was like tell a story of drinking that I could relate to. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed was that, you know, when I when I was drinking, all I heard was people talking to me about my drinking. And then when I started going to the rooms, all I heard was people talking to me about their drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was... Good point. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and that was what did it. Because I was so protective of my image and ego that I wouldn't allow myself to be honest when people wanted to talk about my drinking. Mm-hmm. But when I could hear other people talk about their drinking, I could have those moments of connection where I didn't feel so alone and I didn't feel so unique and I didn't feel so scared. Um, because what I saw was people who drank like I did and thought like I did who weren't doing that anymore and did not seem to be hating life. You know? Um, so that's what the program took when I found somebody who I could relate to on some level, tell their story. And throughout that story have moments of, oh, I drank like that. Oh, I thought like that. Oh, I acted like that. I felt that. Um, and that's that's what hooked me, was this belief that somebody, that, that there was at least one other person out there who was like me, who didn't drink anymore. And so I did what he said. Um, and like a lot of alcoholics, you know, I, I did it a lot. You know, I went to a lot of meetings and you know, I took direction really well when I was new. You expanded beyond that two two people in a small room oh, meeting. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I heard all of the, the 90 and 90. Now, to be fair, I never did 90 and 90, but mm-hmm. I probably did three or four meetings a week, um, you know, for the first couple of years, mm-hmm. um, at least first two years. Was that two-person meeting part of that? It was, and we grew. Did you? That's awesome. Yeah. I I, I really do like the, uh, the point that these two people were, were doing that for about two years. Yeah. And by them doing that, um, they were there when you needed them. And then just with that alone, now, now to learn that that meeting actually grew is even better, but to know that how you, you've been sober for 10 years Mm -hmm. and, I imagine that there's a a good number of people that you have helped Mm -hmm. over those 10 years that would not necessarily have gotten help had you not been helped with those two people who stuck around when they probably didn't want to sometimes. Yeah, or it seemed pointless. Yeah. I'm reminded of a time when it, you know, we're, it may be obvious to listeners, but we're in the South. This is North Carolina. And um, <laughs> when it snows here, everything shuts down. They don't pay, they don't. Uh, um, we don't ice the roads. They, yeah, ice the roads, clean the roads. It's hard to get around. Everything just shuts down. And uh, it, uh, one winter, we had a big snowstorm. So I hiked to the church to uh, open it because I lived close by. The meeting was in the basement of a church and uh, I had a key to it and we made some telephone calls and uh, decided, well, I'm gonna get there. I can walk, I'm gonna get there in case someone needs to be there. 
And uh, one other person from the meeting made it and showed up. And sure enough, somebody came, knew, wow, who wanted to drink really bad and didn't want to drink really bad. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, he, the snow was making him want to drink. He had been sober like a week or so. And and, uh, that always happens. It's still, I can still get a little squirrely when it snows at the beginning because there's this feeling of... uh, a, the drinking festival starts now. Absolutely. <laughs> that was my case. And, and Frank, I still remember there was a dusting of snow. And that meant that I was not going to work tomorrow. Right. So that meant the drinking Holiday. is on tonight. It's on. And I called them the next day and said, there's there's still snow on the driveway. I'm not coming in. They're like, the roads are fine. There's, there's snow on the driveway. I can't make it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, it, so that that was a really rewarding meeting. Isn't that amazing so, how yeah. that works? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I had a similar story. It, it, we did not have someone new show up, but uh, I was a key holder to, uh, to, one, of the, um, to the, one of the clubhouses here. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, within my first year. And I was still living about 20 minutes away from the clubhouse, a 20-minute drive. And, you know, I was willing to drive through icy conditions to go to the liquor store. Absolutely. <laughs> and they told me, and, you know, at least have the, are you willing to go to any links at least to the links you were willing to go to to, to get a drink <laughs> and I was like okay so that was not an excuse for me not to drive into town to, to go and I was the one who was supposed to chair the meeting so I showed up I opened the club and I set up for the meeting and one other person showed up and it was one of the best meetings that I've ever had yeah yeah well I mean as 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 the person who came to that meeting, you know, as as the, as the one who showed up when somebody was there, I can tell you it's it's saved my life. I mean, having somebody in that room, I I I have no idea if I would have tried again if nobody had been there, you know, because mm-hmm. I tried before and it didn't work. I mean, I have no idea what I would have done, but thankfully I don't have to guess because someone was there. Um, you know, I remember fast forward to a, a year. Um, my sponsor had some, some other issues, some outside issues, um, and he sponsored me through the, the 12 steps, and then he fell into a, a bit of a depression and had to withdraw, and on the, the day I was to pick up my one-year chip, he wasn't there, and um, the woman who had opened the door didn't realize it was my birthday, my A birthday, and she, but she, so she pulled out of her pocket her 24-year chip and gave it to me. Oh, wow. And so I still have that. That was my one-year chip. This, this one was 24-year chip. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And I talked to her last week. Yeah, Did you? Oh, I'm so glad yeah. you're still in touch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So nice. She lives in New York, and I guess she has 34 years now. That yeah. is fantastic. Wow. Still in the program. Yeah. wow. Yeah. That's an old-timer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years is an old-timer. Ten years is getting there. As my sponsor said, it's no longer a theory. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. After ten years, it's no longer a theory. Um, you know, and it's, it's been really, it's been a, a crazy ride. Um, you know, just to, to quickly go through it, I, I was really involved in the program for a couple of years, and then I moved and used that as an excuse to sort of get farther away from the, the fellowship and the program. And spent a couple of years not really connected um, and not actively working steps. Did you feel like that you were okay, that you had it, and now I don't need, I've moved and I don't need to pursue yeah, this? Um, I'm I, okay. I, I never, th- I mean, thankfully, AA did a good job convincing me I could never drink again. Mm-hmm. So I never thought I was cured. I never thought that I, I never thought that I would be able to drink it successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that I thought I was okay in that sense, but it was thought I thought that I could, I, I, I didn't think that I needed the spiritual maintenance. I didn't think that I needed to, sort of be connected to the group, in the way that I was. And I don't, I don't even know that I actively thought that, but I lived that way. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to meetings. Did um, you? Was there some fear there of seeking out AA when you? Yeah, moved? Yes. Um, part of it was that I moved from you know a, a college town where I was where I really felt anonymous to a place where you know I was in a small southern town as a priest in a church in a very visible role and um, you know one of the two meetings in the town was at the church where I worked mm. you know and I, I, I remember considering going and thinking to myself no I, I can't risk it 
and I don't know what the it was. You had um, an anonymity problem. Oh, I absolutely had an anonymity. Yeah, yeah I absolutely. Um, and it's you know it's funny because I would tell people I was in recovery once once I let them in, quote unquote. But I um you know I I think I think part of it was a it was an ego thing. No, I mean I think I was embarrassed still, um, mm-hmm. and I think I was. I think I was fearful of what they would think about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was very, very young for a priest, you know, I was 25, 26 at the time. Um, Didn't need any more marks against you. Well, I thought, you know, right, right. Yeah. I, I thought, I felt like I was, you know, I was fighting for credibility as it was. I didn't need to do anything to undermine my credibility as a young, a young priest in this town. And so I didn't go to a meeting. Um, but something happened that, well, that made was, you want to go to a meeting. Well, that was two right? years. So that was two years, and then I moved again um, from that town to a much larger town where we are now. And uh, shortly after, about a year or so after, I moved. I got a call from a guy in Connecticut who asked me if I if I remembered Greg. I said, Yeah, I know Greg. Um, and he said, Well, Greg went back out. And Greg had sixteen years, and um, I had probably six at the time, five or six, and I remember thinking, oh shit. And I sort of asked a little bit about what happened, and it turns out that um, Greg took some of his dying dog's painkillers, and I remember thinking, wow, oh, I could do that. Mm. Not that I wanted painkillers at the moment, mm-hmm. but just thinking, like, I could see myself in a situation in my life where I would do that. You know, um, or at least remember thinking if I was in a situation where there were pink pills on the counter, what would my defense be? What would my defense be? You know, yeah, um, big but, time. You know, because I, I, I hadn't had pain pills on my counter since I got sober. I, it was never an experience I had to live through. You know, I didn't have a dog yet. Um, I was fine. You know, I was married. Um, Just don't get a dog. You won't drink. Apparently, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or do pain pills. Apparently. Yeah. And, but something happened, something clicked inside of me when I was talking to my friends and I thought, I'm, I basically, it was like foreshadowing. I thought, that's how my story goes if I don't get connected again. So I started going to meetings and, uh, you know, I'll, I will be honest, and I think this is important for people to hear. I went to a lot of meetings I did not like for a while. Um, it took me about 10 months of going to meetings in this town before I found what is now my home group. Um, and I'm really glad I stuck with it mm-hmm. because I remember going to these meetings and thinking, I don't like this meeting. And it's because it, they were different than what you were accustomed to. I, I don't know. I mean, part of it, you know, I, I know when people move, that's a big problem. You know, part, that's... part of it has to be that I was not part of, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, after going to, after going to meetings regularly for two years and, and a you know, somewhat intimate college town. I knew a lot of people and mm-hmm. I liked going to meetings and people saying, Hey Nathan, yeah. you know, and I liked being known and I liked, you know, and I, and I need the accountability of people noticing if I'm not there, <laughs> um, you know, just sort of yeah. internally. And so I went to meetings and, you know, part of it was this feeling of it didn't matter if I went or not because I wasn't hanging out with people before or after. Mm-hmm. Right. I wasn't introducing myself to anybody. Um, I wasn't participating unless explicitly asked to do something. So I was just an observer. And so I think that was part of it was I didn't have any skin in the game. I think part of it too was that there was, were some personalities that just aren't my style, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they're good, sober people, but you know, I just, it, it, it wasn't giving me what I thought I needed. And the best decision I ever made was to keep going back until I found something that worked. Absolutely. And this was six years in. I mean, this is not newcomer stuff for me. Like this was, this was after years and years of, of this was after years of, of the program and even more years of the program and not drinking. And I remember sending a message to a guy who is in our home group and saying, what's your home group? Um, and I didn't know him well. I had maybe I'd had two conversations with him in person before then. And he told me when it was and where it met. And I went, and I went back the second week, and I asked that guy's sponsor if he would sponsor me. And that was four years ago, three and a half years ago. 
Wow. That's what a story. That's it's great. Very cool. You know, I've heard that uh, if you say something three times in AA, you can say it's your own. You can. Um, so I'm going to say this is my own now. Okay. Um, good but 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 no, seriously, I, I did hear um, some good advice about going to meetings when you're transplanted, when you're new, or whatever. And that is, um, go to the meeting three times mm -hmm. yeah. because meetings can have an off day too. Sure. And so absolutely to go to a meeting three times before you decide that it sucks. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, it sounds like you did that type of thing as well over yeah. that course of time. Yeah. I mean, I've, I spent almost a year going to meetings um, before I found what is now my group. That's awesome. So i got to ask you. So you're a priest. I am. What? The first question that comes to mind for someone who's um, uh, not religious yeah. would be, well, how does a priest drink? What about your connection to God? Because the way we get, the way we stay sober is dependence mm -hmm. on God, however we define God. Right. And that's a was a big issue for me. It remains to be a big issue. Mm -hmm. it, there's, I go through different levels with it. Um, right now I'm reading um, a John Steinbeck novel, East of Eden, yeah. and the guy's using a divining rod and to find water to dig a well, and um, at the end, he, he finds water in two places, and so the, the other fellow asks him, well, how does that work? How does that thing work? And he says, well, I don't know that I believe it in it, but uh, I do know that it works. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so there you go. And uh, a lot of times, I, for a long time, that's where I am. I've actually like completely surrendered to it now, I feel like. and it, That thing that keeps me sober is what God is sure. for me. Sure. So as a priest, you're drinking, one would think, you're a spiritual advisor to people. What is that like for you? What now? No. What was that journey for you with your relationship with your higher power? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's just for the, the flow of the, the narrative, it's worth saying that fortunately I got sober before I became a priest. So I've never been an alcoholic priest, or that's not uh, true. I've never been a drinking priest. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I got sober before I was ordained. And... In fact, one of the most scared I've ever been was when I decided to tell my bishop I was going to AA meetings. And this was before I was ordained, and I have a lot of power over you. Know? So I thought mm -hmm. that might be a deal breaker. But, you know, I, I had gotten enough of the program that I knew I had to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and so I told him, and he couldn't be happier. It was fine. And 10 years later, I'm still a priest. No, he mm -hmm. ordained me. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are a couple of ways to answer this. One is that up until I got sober, religion was almost exclusively an intellectual exercise for me. It was not experiential. Mm -hmm. And what recovery gave me was uh, experience of theology, an experience of religion, an experience of um, a higher power. And it's, you know, and I don't know how exactly to articulate it, but the steps and following direction and, you know, the prayer and meditation that ultimately I require to, to stay sober the way I need to be sober um, gives me a framework to experience my higher power in a way that I don't know that I would if I wasn't in, in the rooms. And I was talking with a guy I sponsor who made a really interesting comparison that I wouldn't have, but he used to be a personal trainer. And one of the things that you know we were talking about was you can be a priest and not worship, just like you can be a personal trainer and not exercise. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a personal trainer isn't the one doing the workout. Just like, you know, for me as a priest, there are often times where I'm a choreographer or I'm a conductor in some sense that I'm organizing this or I'm leading this. But, you know, I, today, today is a Sunday, um, you know, and I have done, you know, multiple services today. And there are moments in them where they were worshipful. But mm -hmm. I did not attend worship in the way that somebody who was in the pews attended worship. Mm -hmm. And so for me, one of the things that being in recovery does is give me a real experience of 
being in relationship with my higher power that I think sort of fuels my ability to act as a priest and pastor to people in my congregation. Um, you know, I guess the industry where now would be that's my self-care. You know, going to meetings and talking to a sponsor and taking a daily inventory and, you know, making and living amends and praying and meditating so I can quiet the mind to hear God's response to my prayers are things that are invaluable to me and not things that I think I would be able to do or not things that I think I would have the wherewithal to do if I didn't have the word read. It's not a theory. It's a practice. It's a practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Applied spirituality. Absolutely. That's what AA is. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So it's, but it's interesting. I mean, that, you know, I, I have a great appreciation for the difference between church basements and, and church parish halls. And I've gotten a lot more juice in church basements <laughs> than I have in church parish halls. Love it. They're kind of different. Yeah. They're, Services are different. I turned away. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the, as a Methodist. My family was Methodist. And I just, you know, part of this was me, I discovered. But um, I felt every, that I felt it was a social organization and that really people were going there to be seen, to be seen and to see other people. And, um, it's lip service and kind of just a, I don't know, a kind of a pageant. I didn't believe anybody believed it was real. I came to AA and they were talking about prayer and I was um, trembling and um, sick and desperate and I was going, oh no, not prayer. Are these people serious? And I could tell that they were serious. So I tried it, and it worked for me. Um, now I look back on my experience growing up in the church, and, I, and there were people there who had a spiritual connection. So as far as I'm concerned, they're all, all different paths sure. and sure. All, different, all different ways. It's, it's up to the individual what they, yeah, what they see absolutely what is. they get. I think, Go ahead. I think one of, one of the interesting things I have observed is that my experience has been that church is a place where most people in Western Christianity go to show other people how okay they are. You know, it's a place where you do go to show how together you have it. You put your family in their nice clothes and you drive a nice car. So there's an element of that. And you pray for other people, right? Yes. Um, But you don't, you rarely ever, at least in the, the white mainline church in America, you rarely ever hear people praying for themselves. And you rarely, you rarely hear people talking about what they need and where they're falling short. And one of the great things about the, the the program of recovery for me is that that is a place where you can go to talk about your brokenness, where you don't have to sort of pretend that you have it all together, where, mm-hmm. you know, where, unlike my experience of church in a lot of places, is that it's not a benevolent society. You know, it's a place where you go to get better. Um, and, and church for a lot of people is a place where you go to make other people better. Um, it's really interesting. That was a big difference in prayer for me than what I, the way I learned to prayer and the way I learned to pray and the way that I learned to pray in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is to, uh, I my sponsor said, prayer doesn't change others, prayer changes me. And that's a big difference in approach. Absolutely. I'm not yeah. praying for others. And I, and as it is now, I, I don't really pray for others. I pray for me and how I can be helpful to others. What right. can I do to help them? Right. Well, and, Guidance with that. Yeah, I mean, I think another you know, way to articulate a similar thing is that prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. You know, I, don't pray, <laughs> I, don't, I don't pray because I think God's going to do anything different because I pray. I pray because over time, practice, practicing praying the way, right way changes the way I act. And, and what's praying the right way? Um, thy will, not my will. Yeah, and that's the thing that I learned in here. I mean, yeah. praying so that my will can be aligned with God's. Right. And and that was one of the things, you know, the, the praying for others thing was always, uh, in particular, you know, growing up that, you know, I, I hope Sally Sue gets recovered from this, this injury, and, mm-hmm. and, and I hope that this and that for them, as if I know what they need. Right. And... I don't know. Right. I flat out don't know. Yeah. 
And I don't know what I need. I know what I want, right. but I don't know what I need. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's that's great. You know, the reality for me is left to my own devices. I'll pray for the wrong things. Yeah. You know, and I, and so what I have found is that, you know, and I've, I've experienced this and I've also counseled this with people is that when I feel like my prayers are not answered, it's probably because I'm praying for the wrong thing. <laughs> you know? Um, and I, you know, I once joked with somebody is that usually my prayers are answered. Sometimes the answer is just no. Aww. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. And thank you so much. Stay around. We're going to have, it's time for our question, old timers question from the listeners. <laughs> so it is time for our old timers question. Who are you calling an old-timer? I'm calling you an old-timer, you old-timer. It's still one day at a time, and that's what happens if you stay sober it's long also, enough. It's also relative. Now listen up. Aubrey from Little Middle, Arizona asks... A likely story. <laughs> I'm just over a year sober and have been asked to speak at a meeting next week, and I'm really nervous. What do you do to prepare for speaking? quite timely what a timely question interesting that you would ask that question Aubrey I prayed that Aubrey would ask the right question (laughs) (laughs) well Aubrey did because I happen to be speaking tonight and uh, I'm a nervous wreck about it actually how long have you known you're going to be speaking tonight I found out yesterday in the afternoon and I said oh yeah sure I can do that but I was uh and then I, at first I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't do it because I've got a very early flight the next day and this eight o'clock meeting. And I, you know, but I told the, the second time I got asked to speak, I told my sponsor, I don't know if I should do that because I've got to have surgery the next day. And he said, and I, you know, I can't go speak at eight o'clock at night. And he said, what do you need to do? Stay home and worry? <laughs> gotcha. That's good. Okay, 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 I'll speak. So I said, yes, I'll speak. I, even though I have an early flight, I can speak. <laughs> so the one of the best things that I've ever heard was right before um, I went up to speak one time, somebody said, give them some hope. Yeah. And that that just takes care of the whole thing. It's not... It's, the thing about speaking is it's not about um, it's not a performance. It's what what happened to me, what really happened, what happened inside, what were the changes inside of myself that and how did I develop a relationship with a higher power? And if I do those things, share my experience, then there's hope. So another thing um that I've heard is to not plan. I don't plan what I'm going to say anymore. I ask God for direction before I speak, and then just whatever comes out is what comes out. Sometimes it's a jumbled mess. Sometimes it's a beautiful narrative like Nathan gave us. This was just great today. (laughs) But other times it's a jumbled mess, but it doesn't make any difference. Uh, I have had people come up after speaking and I know this is the case for me. I've, I've heard someone speaking, going, I loved what you shared. I really identified with that part of your story. And they'll go, what, what, what did I say? Mm-hmm. That, Absolutely. So you know, if, I'm, if I were to plan it, I might not, I, who knows what I'll say if I plan it. I'm trying to direct it. If I don't plan it and I leave it to God and whatever comes, comes, then who, there's room there. For some, for God to guide whatever I say, and who knows, somebody might need to hear some odd part of my story that I wouldn't normally share. I don't know, I don't know, but that happens. I, my sponsor tells me from time to time, not necessarily in relationship to, to speaking, but I think the advice applies. But show up, speak the truth, and let go of outcome. Yeah, and I think the same the same advice applies to, to speaking. Publicly in, in meetings or, or at speaker meetings and telling your story is, you know, don't plan it. Show up. Make sure you tell the truth. And don't worry about how you do. 
it's it's great advice and as a matter of fact I mean the first time that I told my story um, I had written out a timeline just to piece my life back together I did that at first yeah. and uh, and I and I spoke from that I mean uh-huh. I didn't like you know yeah. read it but I, um, I I did use it for cues along the way to kind of get things right um, and then the second time I told my story I had it there as well and then the third time I told my story, the same guy who told you what he told you told me, um, don't plan it. Mm-hmm. And I spoke in front of that same group that I think that you might be speaking in front of tonight. Yeah. Um, and, it's a big group. Uh, it is a big group. It's a big bunch of scary drunks. It's a big group. <laughs> and, you know, and since then, I don't operate from any notes type of thing you know and the other thing for me about um about prayer before i tell my story before i get up and do it is um and it's it's kind of to to knock me down a peg to make sure mm-hmm. the ego's not uh too inflated and that is that if uh if somebody needs to see someone fall flat on their face tonight and still stay sober <laughs> then i'm willing to do that <laughs> Yeah, I heard, a, I heard a guy begin his talk once with a prayer, and at the end of the prayer he said, so if this doesn't go well, you know whose fault it is. <laughs> Shift the blame. Yeah, which I always love. God, God can take it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that about covers it. Thanks for uh, joining us here at the Boiled Owl. Thanks so much, y'all, and uh, the Boiled Out podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. Leave feedback or ask a question on the blog or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. some butter but she said the butter's bitter if i put it in my batter it'll make my batter bitter so she bought a bit of butter better than her bitter butter and she put it in the batter and the batter was not bitter so it was better betty butter bought a bit of better butter betty better bought a bit of better butter i usually just go testing <laughs> 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 testing <laughs>